You're listening to the teaching of Calvary Paris. For more information, go to www.calvaryparis.com. Let's get into the Word today. We're looking at Mark chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. And I would like to uh, begin just asking God to bless the study again. Heavenly Father, we do pray for the Spirit of God to be with us as we study this morning. Lord, uh, I ask and pray that you would speak to people's hearts that are here today that need to hear from you. Lord Jesus, you're the king. You know all. You're here for us this morning to give us wor- the, the, the manna that we need, the word that we need, Lord, to feast on in our souls to be fed with and to be edified with and to go forth from this place, Lord, filled with the bread of life, the light of the world. Lord, we pray that you would just do a work in the midst of the congregation today for your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Mark introduces us to the subject of the gospel of Mark in the very first verse of his writing. He declares that he's writing to all who will read the story about the beginning of of the good news of Jesus Christ. And, 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 and that to me strikes me as being something uh, interesting. The beginning, in other words, the story is continuing. The good news about Jesus Christ, it continues to this day. In fact, you and I are a part of the good news of Jesus Christ. Those of us that believe in him as our savior. The story is still going on today. For me, the good news of Jesus Christ impacted my life at a very young age. 1982 was when I went forward at church to receive Christ. Four-year-old boy just knew that I needed Jesus and went forward in faith. And my journey began in in that young age and is continuing to this day. I can't tell you how much the good news of Jesus Christ impacts my life every single day of my life. And I stand before you, able to minister before you today as a a preacher boy, as some have called me here in Texas, preacher boy. The only reason I can stand before you as preacher boy this morning is because I, I find my identity in the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news. I find that I am cleansed and enabled and, 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 and equipped for the work of the ministry because of Jesus Christ. So you and I are part of this story. Now after Mark spends the first chapter introducing us to Jesus, showing us that he's the son of God, he, he gives us the message of Jesus Christ there in verse one, uh, 15 of chapter 1. And he says that that message is that we should turn from whatever else we're following and we need to believe that Jesus is the king. And we need to follow him. And he lays out the rest of the chapter. It's structured to show you that Jesus Christ is king. He is king. Now, Mark begins to now shift his focus a little bit. The very last story of Mark chapter 1, he introduced us to the priests that were in the temple in Jerusalem. And with that thought, it's as if Mark now is triggered in his mind and he begins to share some of the history of the controversy of Jesus Christ with the religious establishment there in Israel. And so here is the first of five controversy stories that Mark is going to share with us all the way into chapter 3. And they're, they're, they're meant to show us how Jesus is 
going to clash with the teachers of the law. He's trying to show us that the mindset of Jesus Christ, the heart of Jesus Christ in his ministry, it's against the religious establishment. They've grown apart from the Lord. They've grown apart from a personal relationship with God. And everything is in outward form to them. And their pride has snuck in through the back door, so to speak, and it has created an environment in Israel that is far from the heart of God. And so Jesus comes on the scene, and he's going to confront that. And he begins to do that here in chapter 2 with the very first controversy story. And we start off this morning looking at the setting for the first controversy story. If you have your outline, you study along or follow along, first point, the setting for the first controversy story. Read with me in verse 1 and 2. And again, he entered Capernaum after some days, and it was heard that he was in the house. Immediately, many gathered together so that there was no longer room to receive them, not even near the door. And he preached the word to them. In these two verses, as we begin our study this morning, Mark explains to us the setting for this controversy story. Again, in chapter 1, we read that after calling the first disciples, after casting out a demon, after healing the sick, he left to visit other towns in the Galilee area. Now, there were some 200 plus villages and towns in the Galilee area. The villages consisted of a few families, all the way up to a few hundred people, while the towns were slightly larger, having a thousand to a few thousand people in the largest of them. Now, we don't know how many of them Jesus visited, but several days later, he's back in Capernaum on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. Capernaum was probably a, 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 ta- a village or town, I should say town, of about 1,500 people or so. So Jesus, the majority of his ministry was to these small towns and villages. He had a heart for these people. He had a heart to go to them and to minister with them and to minister to them. And I I appreciate that. I grew up in a small town myself, uh, you know, and and then lived in Costa Rica the past nine years in a village of about 3,000 to 5,000 people. And it's so funny because when I moved here, I hear these comments from some of you and other folks, you know, that are like, well, have you found enough here in Paris to keep you busy? And I I chuckle to myself because they think it's a small town. I feel like it's a huge city. (laughs) I'm looking at Paris, Texas going, oh my goodness, I can't even find my way around. (laughs) I get lost all the time and there's so many people here and I see a huge need for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and just so much uh, potential for what the Lord can do here. And so I'm excited to be here. But I feel like it's a huge city. I like to run home to Blossom every day after work where I feel a little bit more at home. That small town setting, you know. Get out of my car and wave to my neighbors. Hey, Leo, how you doing? You know, it's good. I love it. But that's, that's where Jesus was. That's where his heart was. He was ministering to these towns and villages. As soon as he gets back to Capernaum, he takes shelter in a house. Probably Peter's house, the same house where he's already healed his mother-in-law. And the word immediately goes out through the town like wildfire. You know how that happens in a small town, don't you? I mean, in Costa Rica, it was kind of embarrassing. We would get something delivered to the house. You know, we'd go to the, the appliances store and buy a new refrigerator. And it would get dropped off at the house. And then later on that day, I'd be down in the town square or whatever playing soccer. And someone would ask me, hey, how do you like that new refrigerator? You know, and I'm like, what? How do you know about that? 
everybody knows everybody's business in a small town. So the word traveled swiftly and brought the people in because Jesus was making waves. He was impacting people on a different level because of the authority that he had in his teaching and the power that he had to heal. There's one more important detail to the setting that we cannot miss this morning. The fact that Jesus preached the word to these people. Mark emphasizes that detail. Jesus didn't just come into town and look for a place to rest and hole up and hide out. He didn't just come into town and look to heal and have miracles. In fact, many people emphasize his healing and miracle ministry, but that's not what Jesus was all about. Primarily, the focus of his ministry was preaching the word of God. Now, preaching is a combination of two different things. There's teaching involved, and there is proclaiming. In this case, teaching about God, proclaiming the good news about salvation. So knowing this, we can know that Jesus was primarily focused on teaching the people about God and telling them the good news about salvation. Why do I bring this up? Because we have been called to follow in Jesus Christ's footsteps. You and I are called as followers of Christ to be about the business that Jesus Christ was about when he was on the earth. And his focus, if his focus was teaching others about God and proclaiming the good news, where are we at in relation to that example? We have to find that example in Scripture. We have to apply Scripture to our lives like this. Now, I love doing baby dedications. I love that these parents desire to present their children to the Lord. But you know what? With parenting comes great responsibility, doesn't it? And one of the ways that we as parents follow Christ in our homes is by continually seizing opportunities to teach our children about the Lord. One of the things that we do in our household is if we're watching a show with the kids or a movie with the kids and something, there's some element that's introduced in that movie that's ungodly or maybe it's uh, something that, that causes them to question, hey, we'll, we'll pause that movie and we'll talk about that. And we'll straighten out the details and we'll take a minute and say, you know what? This right here is an ungodly principle. And here's why. The Word tells us about this in whichever verse. And we'll bring that up and we're constantly looking for an opportunity to shape and mold and to teach these young children about the Lord. So that's one area that we can apply this focus in Jesus' lives in our lives. Is that we need to be about teaching others about God. But we also need to be teaching the good news or proclaiming the good news. Man, we need to find ways to do that. And we can be creative about it. Now, I'm not a real outgoing guy when I get out in public. I'm not the kind of guy that's the, 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 uh, what are the, the, the life of the party, as they call it, right? I'm not that guy. I have friends that are that guy. And I'm, sometimes I'm jealous of them, you know? I'm like, man, how do they do that? They just got everybody laughing. Everybody's focused on, you know? And, and, and I'm like, man, I wish I could do that sometimes. But I'm not that guy. So the way that I share the gospel is often through example or through the way that I'll say something to somebody or asking a question at the right time and seeing if somebody is open. But there are many ways that we can go about it. It's going to be unique to each one of us according to the giftings that God has given us. We don't need to all be the same type of evangelist, but we do need to be about We need to recognize this is a focus in Jesus' ministry in life, and we're called to imitate him. So how can we do that? How can we be uh, 
teaching others and proclaiming good news. As we gather in our homes, as we live our lives, when we're driving in the car, are we taking the opportunities to teach others about God? Are we sharing the good news of salvation? You know, Pastor Chuck, who founded Calvary Chapel Movement, he talked a lot about how when we feed the sheep from the pulpit by teaching the Word of God, one of two things is going to happen. We're going to have these healthy sheep that are going to be strong spiritually, and they're going to go out and they're going to reproduce, spiritually speaking, other healthy sheep. That's one version of how that could play out. The other version is that the sheep just get real fat. And they get obese, and then they become unhealthy sheep that are just sitting around, soaking it in, taking it in, but they're never doing what God intends, and that is to be teaching others. That is to be looking for ways to take what you have learned and assimilate it and, and, and disseminate that information to others in your life. So are you doing that? Jesus Christ was all about it. He preached, he taught, he proclaimed. Are we sharing the good news of salvation? Jesus was, and he wants us to do the same. We come now to verse 3, where we see the second point. Faith-filled friends bring a paralyzed man to Jesus. It says, then they came to him, bringing a paralytic who was carried by four men. And when they could not come near him because of the crowd, they uncovered the roof where he was. So when they had broken through, they let down the bed on which the paralytic was lying. <clears throat> Now, I've got a picture of a house that is going to come up on the screen here. And, and, and it's a picture of a typical home, a first century, century Israelite house. Um, there were many shapes and sizes of houses in those days. But regardless of, of, of what it may have looked like or the shape may have been, it would have had that courtyard area there in the front. Oftentimes, it was in the courtyard where the livestock was kept. Uh, if there was a, a, a horse, actually a horse was something that usually only the aristocrats owned. But if there was a mule or a cow or a donkey, it would be stored there in that courtyard area. And then that top of the house was covered with the roof, which was made up of three layers. Those three layers would have been wooden beams for support. And then straw and tree branches would have been laid down across the wooden beams. And then on top of that, there would have been clay, which would have been packed down by rolling a large stone over the top of that rooftop to harden it. And then the sun would finish that job for them. Notice with me that these men have an extraordinary desire to get their friend to Jesus. And undeterred by the crowd, they're going to carry their paralyzed friend up to the rooftop. Now, what's not pictured there, that a lot of houses in the Palestine area had in those times, was an outdoor staircase that would go up to the rooftop. And so, when they show up at the scene, it is absolutely packed. The courtyard is overflowing, and they cannot get in. And so, they circumvent the crowd, they go to the side of the house, go up on top of the roof, via the staircase, and begin to make a hole so that they can lower their friend down to Jesus. This reveals something to us. It reveals to us that these guys have great faith in the power of Jesus Christ to heal. They have a great faith that Jesus is the one that can do something about the situation that their friend is in. I want to ask you a question this morning. Do you have friends like this in your life? Think about that. 
Do you have friends like this in your life that care about you and your spiritual walk with the Lord? If you don't, you need to find some. You need to make the time necessary to go and find some friends that care about your walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. That care that you and Jesus are doing good. You know, I cannot tell you how important the role of godly friendship has been in my life. When I was a high schooler and faced with many of the temptations that high schoolers are faced with, and, and I believe it's only getting worse in, in, in a sense for the young people. And, and, and those of you that are high schoolers here today, we pray for you guys. We know that you guys are surrounded by temptation, and we hope that you guys uh, know that, that we love and pray for you and want you to be able to bring your uh, struggles and bring your, uh, your, your concerns to us and let us help you be supported here at the church. But when I was in high school, I remember that one of the things that kept me from so much of what the world was doing in those days and in my small town was the, the, the godly friends that God had brought into my life. I remember one in particular, his name was Jason George. And we're still friends to this day. He was a part of my wedding. And we still call each other every now and then and talk to each other. But that guy was the only friend that I had who was a strong Christian. And we knew each other from youth group. And there were other Christians and all of that, and I understand that. But for some reason, God and, had this guy for me, for my friend. And I cannot tell you how many times, man, he kept me from doing ungodly things. And how many times I was able to keep him from doing ungodly things. Because we cared about each other's relationship with the Lord first. Man, we would do a lot of stuff together. You know what? Some people think that Christians have to be boring people. You know, that never do anything. That's not the case in my life, in my experience. As a Christian, with a godly friend, we did stuff all the time. My life was full of activity. And I look back on it, man, I thought, man, I really lived a fun life as a high school student. And that's totally possible. But we need to have friends around us that are going in the right direction. Because if you change that element, you've got friends that don't want to carry you to Jesus. Man, you're going to have problems. Because if they're not carrying you to Jesus, where are they carrying you? Away from Jesus. Away from Jesus. So think about that. Do you have friends like this in your life? And the other question I have for you this morning is, are you a friend like this to some, someone else in your life? You know, I'm blessed to know that some of you are these friends to other people. I've seen it in the ways that you work and the ways that you uh, have interacted with each other. I'm blessed to know many of you that you are friends that are godly influences in the lives of others but listen we need to apply this are you personally ask yourself this question are you a friend to somebody else are you a friend that's taking them to Jesus or are you leading them away from Jesus what Jesus does next is very interesting because he doesn't do what they think he's going to do he's going to refine their faith in his healing power to become a faith in his saving power check it out with me in verse 5 the next point in our sermon this morning, Jesus sees their faith and refines it. It says in verse 5, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Jesus saw their faith. Number one, he saw their faith. We need to observe this. This tells us that Jesus notices faith. He notices things like this. Do you 
Think about that in your heart for a minute. Jesus knew what these men were doing and he noticed that they did it because of their faith. When I pray and when you pray, what are we doing? We're expressing faith. That's how we show faith. One of the greatest ways I believe that you can show faith in your life, like these men did, is to bring others to the Lord in prayer. Is to say, you know what? (laughs) This situation is out of my control. It's beyond my uh, ability to control this, but I'm going to do the best thing that I know that I can do, and that's bring these people to Jesus. You know that God wants us to rely upon Him. He is looking for people to just say, you know, I know that I can't do this on my own. I need to run to Jesus right now. I need to run to God right now. Some people make fun of Christians. They think that we have a God just because we need a crutch. That God is a crutch in our lives. You know what I like to say to those kind of people? Hey, He's a lot more than a crutch in my life. He's my mom, he's my, he's my binky, he's my whatever I need when I need it. Jesus Christ is everything to me. My son always likes to grab his tag, you know. He grabs a tag and his shirt and he rubs it between his fingers while he sucks his thumb, you know. You know, he loves that thumb. Everywhere he goes, he's got that thumb in his mouth. It always reminds me how much I need Jesus. Just like he's got that thumb in his mouth, I'm like, yep, that's me. I'm a baby. I need Jesus in my life. I need God. And God is blessed when we show that kind of faith to him. Did you know that? He's blessed when his children say, hey, I'm at my wit's end. I don't know what to do. I'm taking this to Jesus. That's faith. And that's what God wants. He notices that we express faith by doing that. Jesus recognized the faith of these four friends. I think he recognizes your faith when you do similar things. Remember that the next time that you pray for someone that needs Jesus. We're doing what these four friends did. But here, this faith that they have, this faith to bring them to Jesus, Jesus is going to refine their faith by not meeting their expectations. Jesus doesn't meet their expectations here. Did you notice that? These guys are lugging this guy around, and they're bringing him up the stairs. They're making a hole in the roof. They're lowering him down, and they put him on the floor. And Jesus looks at him and goes, I forgive your sins. And they're like, You know, like, what? (laughs) What? They had an expectation that Jesus was going to reach over and touch that guy like they'd seen him do before and raise him up and heal him. But Jesus does not operate according to our plans. His thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. You see, Jesus could see the bigger picture, couldn't he? Jesus is going to refine their faith by not meeting their expectations. Has God done this in your life? Has God ever not met your expectations as you're praying and crying out in faith? God, heal this person. Do something in their life. I'll never forget as a young man being involved in the life of a very good friend who lost his first wife. Very young. She was 23 years old. And I remember that, I I think she was 23 years old. I might be corrected on that, but... We were there, she had cancer and, uh, you know, had gone through all kinds of treatments at one point, was cancer free. They got married, went on a honeymoon. Three months later, she's back in the hospital room fighting for her life. And as they had praise and worship music playing in that room, and they were worshiping the Lord and believing God for a miracle and believing God that she was going to be healed, she sat up in that bed in the hospital 
And she said, I'm healed. God has healed me. And then she laid down and died. And went home to be with the Lord. And there were many of us that were friends. That were praying and had expectations for healing. We were praying with faith. But you know what? God challenged our faith that day. He didn't meet our expectations. But you know what? He did heal that young lady. And I know where she is today. But God does that. Why does he do this? Because he sees the real issues in life. He sees the real needs. He sees beyond that one moment in time. He sees beyond your heart's desire for that particular situation. And he sees the whole scope all at once. And somehow, in his sovereignty, he knows what is good. And he knows what is best. And we have to trust him in those times. But the Lord knew in this situation that the greatest need that this paralytic man had was not to be healed. Now this could be maddening to some of us as we're looking at this. We're just going, why not? Why can't you just do what we want you to do, Jesus? Wait a minute. Wait a minute. The scriptures teach us that the clay doesn't say to the potter, why have you made me like this? We, we have to remember that Jesus understands the greatest need of this moment is not healing. It's not physical healing. But rather it's forgiveness of sins. This should teach us something. Uh, number one, this teaches us that, you know, the source of, uh, of these things is it's because there's evil in this world. And evil comes from the fallen state that human beings are in ever since the Garden of Eden. That's sin had entered in there and since that time we've been living in a fallen world and these things like this paralyzed man it's just a result of that and we have to realize that we have to recognize that but greater than being healed this man needed forgiveness because his sin was cutting him off from being saved eternally jesus could see that the greatest need for him was not that he'd be healed and be able to have a so-called normal life Is God challenging your faith today in some situation in your life? Maybe he's refining your faith right now by not doing things your way. Maybe in your finite wisdom you think this is what should be done. But you know what? The Lord God, he sees all, he knows all. And you know what? He is good. And he will do the best thing for you. So that's what Jesus did for this man right here. And so the question is, will you conform to his plan and trust him by faith? Or will you grow bitter? Will you grow bitter and allow Satan to rip you off and deceive you and to lead you away from the Lord? Man, Satan would love to do that. And he's doing that. He's doing that in some people's lives this morning. I pray that you can realize that God has the, he knows the greatest need. He knows what he's doing. And everything that he does, he does it because it is the best for you and for that person and for everybody involved. But we need to recognize there are some things in this life that they're just the way they are because we live in a fallen world. Not everybody's going to be healed. We continue on. The skeptical scribes that struggle with belief in verses 6 and 7. It says, some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. Why does this man speak blasphemies like this? 
Who can forgive sins but God alone? So the scribes that are mentioned here, who are they? Really quick, if you've never heard of these guys, they were simply teachers of religious law. They did copy the Jewish law, but they were, more importantly, teachers of the law. They were in the synagogues on a weekly basis, interpreting the law for the people and and for the different situations in their communities where they lived. So the scribes were closely affiliated with the religious sect of the Pharisees. They were another group in the Jewish culture of the day. But here in Mark chapter 2, we're introduced to this controversy that Jesus is going to have from this point forward with the teachers of Mosaic law. These men reveal that they're skeptical of Jesus Christ because of pride and because they have not discerned correctly who he is. They're revealing that their hearts are blinded by pride and their knowledge has puffed them up and caused them to pridefully reject Jesus Christ as their Messiah. Do you know that this still happens today? There are, uh, even in Christian churches, people that (laughs) are upset about movements of God. The moves of the Holy Spirit in the church body. And people look at it and they go, well, that's just crazy. Well, that's not God. That's not the Lord. Well, look at it. Let's dissect it all. And let's just judge and critically find something wrong with that movement of God. Their pride has filled their hearts and they're being deceived by it. They're puffed up in their knowledge. In his book, Multiply, Francis Chan, he makes a great point about having the right motivation when we study God's word. The quote will be up on the screen. It says that when we study the Bible in order to gain more knowledge, to look more intelligent, to prove a point to someone else, or to convince other people that they should think and act just as we do, then we're studying the Bible with wrong motives. And then he says, what is the fruit of this type of study? We become puffed up. Ironically, tragically, the act of studying the Bible has produced some of the most arrogant people this world has ever seen. Wow, that's right on, isn't it? Man, I've, I've both been that arrogant guy that's puffed up from studying the word and I think I know it all. And I've seen people that are puffed up and arrogant because they've been studying the Bible for the wrong motives. Man, when we study the Bible just for status or just so that we can, you know, say, hey, I checked off that box and did my religious duty. Man, we become puffed up and we become judgmental and blinded by pride. We need to be careful about our motives in studying. The scribes, they'd been studying for so long and they'd been so filled with pride. They thought, hey, I'm in the position now where this is the son of God here, but it doesn't matter. I'm going to judge him. I'm going to put myself in the judgment seat over the Son of God. You know, there are Christians that do that today. There are Christians that come to church with the mindset that this is all about me. This is all about me and I'm in the position to judge. How confused and how deceived we can become because of spiritual pride. Instead of being drawn near to God, instead of recognizing their own need for forgiveness, they became judgmental and skeptical of the true Son of God. I pray that that doesn't describe us. If it does, we need to repent. Notice that these scribes were thinking only God can forgive sins. That is true. What is also true is that Jesus has the power and the authority to forgive sins. We're going to see that be proved in just a minute. So what does that make Jesus? Makes Him God. 
Check out verse 8 through 12 with me, where Jesus proves he's able to forgive sin. It says, immediately Jesus perceived in his spirit that they reasoned thus within themselves. He said to them, why do you reason about these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven you? Or to say, arise, take up your bed and walk. So what do you think about that question? <laughs> what do you think about that question? What's easier to do? What, would it be easier to say, I mean, your sins are forgiven? Obviously, that's the easier thing to say because you don't, there's no outward proof of that, right? I could walk over to you right now and say, your sins are forgiven. But we would never know if that was true or not, right? Because it's an internal thing. It's a spiritual thing. So that's easier to say. That's Jesus' point. But he's using this logic to refute the skepticism of the scribes. I love the fact that Jesus uses logic here. <laughs> he's using logic. If you're a logical thinker, hey, be encouraged. Jesus uses logic to refute these men. And, and so can we. We can definitely use, we are not taking a spiritual leap of uh, spiritual suicide. I'm sorry, a leap of spiritual suicide by believing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Okay? We have logical principles behind what we believe. There is a why for what we believe. And you know what? It's just as good and better in my heart than the principles that hold up evolution and secularism and humanism and all of those things that are out there today. So we have this logic here. Jesus says, what's easier to say? Just as the scribes would have deduced it was easier to say that your sins were forgiven, they would have known that only a true miracle of God could cause this paralyzed man to rise up and walk. Let's see what he does. Verse 10. But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, arise, take up your bed and go to your house. And immediately he arose took up the bed and went out in the presence of them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. So Jesus proves here that not only does he have power to forgive sin, because he also has power to do something else that only God could have done, which was to completely heal a man whose paralysis was so severe that he had to be carried around everywhere by his friends. Notice with me that Jesus in verse 10 refers to himself as the Son of Man. I want to point that title out to you as we close out our study this morning because Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, that's his self-proclaimed title, his favorite title for himself. I want to read to you where that comes from in the Old Testament. Daniel chapter 7 Verse 13 and 14 says this, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. So Jesus, his self-proclaimed title, the Son of Man, is taken directly from the Old Testament prophet Daniel. And that passage right there should have given the people around him a clue as to his real ident identity. As we close the story today, 
we already know where Jesus stands. We already know that he's the son of man. He's the one in, under whom all dominion is going to be given. And his kingdom is not going to pass away. It will never be destroyed. But where do you fit into the story? Can you insert yourself into the story as one of the faithful friends? That's in a place where you're being a friend to somebody else. That's leading them to the Lord. That's taking them to Jesus. Can you insert yourself into the story as the paralyzed man? Maybe not physically, but because of circumstances in your life, you are in a position where you're just paralyzed because of the circumstances in your life. The sin maybe in your life is paralyzing you. Or can you insert yourself here today as a skeptical scribe? Someone who in your pride is judging others. We need... We need to insert ourselves into this story in order to have the the, the word of God be applied to us today. And maybe you can fit in in all three of those areas. I don't know. I know myself at different times. I, I can be any of those. Maybe you're here today and your faith is being refined by Jesus Christ. You're coming to a realization today that he is king over all. My prayer for you is that you will allow the king to do what he needs to do in your heart this morning. That you will allow him to raise you up into a place of worshiping him in your heart. That you will come to a realization, hey, everything is going to be given to him. My life needs to be lived for him today. I need to bow down. I need to acknowledge that he is king. And that he has the power to forgive sin. Maybe some of you this morning need that assurance in your life. You need to be assured that Jesus does have the power to forgive your sin. That there is uh, no sin that he cannot cover with his blood that he shed for you on the cross. As we close today, we're going to be partaking of the Lord's Supper. Which is really a way to celebrate the fact that we are forgiven. It's a way to put faith to our uh, uh, Christian walk and say, you know what? I believe that Jesus died on that cross for me and that he took my place. And I'm partaking of this today to remember that he did this for me. So I'm going to ask that the, the musicians come out, the worship team comes out. And we're going to finish our service today by partaking of the communion elements And Pastor Greg is actually going to lead us in that this morning. I've asked him to come and to lead us in that. But uh, let's go ahead and close out with prayer. And then I'm going to ask that the uh, ushers and servant leaders would begin to pass out the elements of the Lord's Supper today. And as you receive that, just remember what you're holding in your hands, what it represents. And do business with the Lord this morning. If you need to confess sin, the Lord tells us that if we confess our sins, the Lord is faithful to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we, we, we can do that this morning as we have this time. So let's, let's go ahead and pray and uh, we'll begin to worship. Lord, we thank you for this passage of scripture today that proves to us that you have power to forgive sin, that you have power to heal. Lord Jesus, that you recognize faith in us. And Lord Jesus, you bring us to faith. You refine our faith in you at the same time. 
Lord, I just pray that today that you would do all of those things in our hearts and lives. Lord, for the person that's here this morning and doesn't have faith or they've been a skeptic or, Lord, wherever they're at, I pray that you would bring them to faith in you, your power to save, Lord Jesus, this morning. Lord, for those that are here this morning and they're not having their expectations met the way they thought they would, I pray that you would refine their faith to be in the Son of Man, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, that they would trust you in knowing that you see the real needs behind the scenes. You know what's going on, and they can trust you because you are good. You're a good, good Father. Lord, I just pray that you administer to us now as we partake of the Lord's Supper this morning. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.